1: This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, today, we are continuing and nearing the end of season two, where we have talked about uh, important figures and movements in church history. We have had to uh, really kind of gloss over and and fly over a lot of really really important people and important movements, but I hope that so far you've you've um, gained. Uh, some more understanding of some of those important shifts and important ideas that have really affected the church. And um, today we attempt one last uh, episode where we're going to cover a lot of ground, a lot of ideas, a lot of personalities, and, and trying to actually take this event and uh, look forward into the the impact that it has had over the last couple hundred years. So today we're talking about uh, the Great Awakening and how the Great Awakening um, later influenced uh, the rise of the evangelical movement, which of course is still a major influence, uh, particularly in American culture today. And so I'm joined by special guest, uh, Dr. George Grant. Um, Dr. Grant is the pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. He has helped found many classical schools around uh, the United States and the world, Uh, is known for his Giles Kirk history curriculum, and uh, around Searcy, he is known as the 2017 Paideia Prize recipient, and so uh, Dr. Grant's a good friend of ours. And so uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation where we Really tried to accomplish uh, a great number of things, discussing the Great Awakening, what it was, who the major figures were, and then what the implications were of, of that movement, both at the time and even into our own present day. So, I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. George Grant. Well, Dr. George Grant, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join me today. It's great having you back on the Commons.
0: Well, thank you. It's it's a delight to be with you again.
1: Um, and not only taking time out of a busy schedule, but taking time out to really jump into the deep end of the pool here. This is a very big topic that we have ahead of us. Um, and we're talking about one of the most significant religious movements in American history, uh, around the, the 17th, uh, 1700s, um, and influenced both, uh, American and British history. It's the great awakening. And right. the Great Awakening included some fascinating personalities and friendships, which I hope we'll be able to talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. And it also influenced the birth of evangelicalism, which obviously still a major influence in um, in American culture today. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, so Dr. Grant, let's, let's begin by uh, talking about the Great Awakening from a bird's eye view. Uh, which, which is about all we can expect in but one that, short podcast. Right, but, right. but b- before the Great Awakening began, what was the state of the church and society? What, what were things like at that
0: time? I think most people realized that all of the American colonies uh, were founded at, with at least some religious basis uh, at the at the core of their existence, and there was wide diversity. But all of their charters, legal systems, social structures, commercial compacts, and political covenants were were founded on biblical legal principles. But as the 17th century progressed, the fires of faith began to dim. Uh, Cotton Mather, uh, one of the most influential of the early founders, uh, talks about this in his book, uh, Magnalia Christi Americana, where he, he, he surveys those earliest founding days in the colonies and, and described how prosperity uh, seemed to put a wet blanket on the spiritual fervor of the colonies. The passion of the children and the grandchildren of the original settlers turned increasingly to land and wealth and worldly success uh, at the expense of service to the Lord. Uh, They still believed the Bible at some level, but their, their hearts had strayed from the faith of their parents who endured great hardships and saw God's providential hand in their work. So to many people, personal peace and affluence, to use a wonderful Francis Schaeffer phrase, had become more important than the God who gave them the power to make their wealth in the first place. And so uh, Cotton Mather uh, simply declared, the daughter destroyed the mother. Uh, There's a danger, he, he said, uh, when the enchantments of this world make us forget our errand in the, into the wilderness. Uh, that errand was uh, he... Uh, proclaimed and certainly the earliest founders uh, would have said was to build a city on a hill an illumination for all the world so <clears throat> you have spiritual lethargy um, spiritual formalism uh, you have a lot of church attendance but not much spiritual fervor not not a lot of genuine uh, worldview thinking the application of the faith to the details of life. So at the beginning of the great awakening this this was the state of the church the church was asleep in the light.
1: Hmm. So what was it that happened during the great awakening and and of course we're speaking in generalizations as with any historical movement there there wasn't exactly a start line and a finish line but um what happened during the great awakening uh and and how did it change the church and culture, given that apathy and lethargy?
0: Well, th- there were a number of Puritan pastors who issued uh, their fierce Jeremiahs, declaiming the sinfulness and the spiritual uh, torpor that, uh, that seemed to uh, have emerged. Uh, there was a lack of missional concern, um, but... but There were a number of of small movements brewing beneath the surface. Uh, There there were a few um, evangelists traveling from town to town holding revival meetings, uh, oftentimes connected with their quarterly communion services. Um, There was uh, one occasion in particular in Enfield, Connecticut, uh, was a place where uh, some local ministers invited uh, a uh, a young pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards uh, to preach uh, when uh, Edwards and the others entered the meeting place on the afternoon of july the eighth seventeen forty one they they were shocked by the disrespectful and to their mind, indecent behavior of the congregation. Uh, But in the midst of this very disinterested audience, uh, Edwards uh, mounted into the pulpit and uh, delivered a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As he preached, he used uh, no uh, gestures, he stood nearly motionless, and he read... Uh, without looking up from his notes, but in the sermon, uh, which is a great classic of American literature, it's uh, it's anthologized even in the in the Norton anthologies, um, he painted this uh, this image of God holding man over the pit of hell, in the same way that he would hold uh, a spider over the fire. And uh, he declared that it was only God's great mercy that keeps uh, him from letting the sinner fall into the flames uh, like a spider into the hearth. Uh, The sermon was uh, almost immediately, strangely, interrupted by cries from the lost, pleading with God for mercy. Eyewitnesses said that some people grabbed the pillar's Of the church, expecting that any moment their feet would slide into the pit of hell. Uh, All through the night, uh, almost every home in Enfield uh, had men and women weeping over their sins and crying out to God to save them from judgment. That kind of scene was repeated all over New England over the course of just a handful of months and years. And um while sociologists and missiologists have tried to examine what it was that was done how it was done uh, wh- whether or not the methodologies might be repeatable the, the the common consensus is that this was a peculiar spiritual awakening of what um of what uh, Jonathan Edwards called uh, the stirring by the spirit of religious affections so the Great Awakening really is, uh, is this, this unique moment when y- you have powerful preachers like Jonathan Edwards and uh, people uh, laying the groundwork, the, the creation of, um, of uh, schools of evangelists led by uh, Gilbert Tennant and, uh, and, and others. But, uh, but truly, this was a, a working of the Spirit. And it was spontaneous, and it was powerful, and it began to spread from town to town to town. Churches were uh, revived. New churches were planted. Uh, Crowds would gather to hear these uh, uh, heretofore rather ordinary Puritan preachers uh, proclaim the gospel of hope. And it changed everything.
1: Now. this is, um, one of those times in history where you have this spiritual awakening, spiritual fervor, uh, revival, even a, a common term used to describe the great awakening, I guess. And, uh, um, in the midst of such spiritual apathy was, was there, was there pushback against the great awakening? Were there any negative reactions to it at the time? And if, if so, where did it, uh, where did it come from?
0: Well, yes. Anytime you have any kind of cultural movement, uh, good or bad, there's always going to be pushback. And there was a tremendous amount of pushback. Uh, many people believed uh, that uh, that what they were witnessing was uh, the, um, the the unshackling of, uh, of um, really shameful human passions – uh, because oftentimes there was a great deal of emotion attached to these uh, revival movements. Uh, there was concern that uh, that some of the open air meetings actually undermined the authority of the church. Uh, th- these were people who had come to America for freedom of expression and religion, uh, but the, the, the notions of an educated. And licensed clergy uh, was, uh, w- was you know, widespread, and therefore, uh, when you start to see these enthusiasms, or as Edwards called them, affections, uh, there, there was a great deal of suspicion. And the suspicion came largely from the established churches, from the clergy themselves, mm-hmm. um, obviously the clergy who were not a part of the revival.
1: Right, um, and that's that's kind of a common theme through church history. I mean, clearly, in even in the Gospels, of course, um, where um, not that all of these men during the Great Awakening should be lumped in with Pharisees. That's not what I mean, but um, but there is uh, whenever there's great emotion or or these kinds of awakenings, there is that concern as to you know is this genuine? Is it just emotion? Are people getting carried away? Um, but that's sort of a common pattern, isn't it? That that it's uh, those within the relig- the religious or church um, establishment that can sometimes be the source of pushback.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, I th- I think you're right. We don't want to uh, paint with too broad a brush. Of course, there were Pharisees and Sadducees. Of sure. course, there were people who were uh, entrenched in clergy who really had very little spiritual affection themselves. Uh, certainly, little spiritual enthusiasm, uh, but but there were others who were simply cautious. Uh, they were they were concerned by excesses, and of mm. course, excesses always accompany enthusiasm. Sure. So, uh, and then there was the the legitimate concern about the character, nature, and integrity of gospel ministry in the church. Is this religious movement going to? Uh, to run past or outrun the church itself, and, and thus undermine uh, the, um, the 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 integrity of the uh, of the communities in which the enthusiasms broke out. So those were all legitimate questions, uh, but uh, there there were also questions from those who had begun to drink deeply from the wells of uh, enlightenment skepticism, and so you have all kinds of pushback from right. the world the flesh and the devil and it's uh, it's always that way and it most assuredly was that uh, during the time of the great Awakening jo- Jonathan Edwards uh, re- received a tremendous amount of criticism uh, although he was incredibly articulate in defending the uh, the reforming works that occurred during the revivals he, he Really was blasted by the religious establishment, and then of course uh, there there were others: uh, William and Gilbert Tennant, um, uh, George Whitfield. All of them received fierce, fierce opposition.
1: Mm-hmm. Now let, let's talk about some of those major figures. Um, uh, we obviously don't have time to to discuss all of the the major players in the Great Awakening um but you've already mentioned Jonathan Edwards a few times so let's let's start with him what were his uh what were his major contributions to the awakening beyond just of course that that first service in Connecticut that you described when he preached that famous sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god um what what else did he contribute to the awakening
0: well he was a brilliant theologian and he wrote widely his works are invaluable to this day he was a pastor In Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, He actually succeeded his grandfather in in that church as the pastor and uh, was uh, very passionate about uh, frontier missions and missions to uh, Native Americans. Uh, He was a, a careful scholar, he was a scientist. Um, many believe that he was one of the greatest intellectuals in all of American history, uh, but perhaps his greatest contribution to the Great Awakening, besides the fact that he was used mightily of God to, to proclaim the gospel and to be at uh, some of the pivotal meetings like that one in Enfield and innumerable ones there in Northampton— uh, at his church, uh, besides all of that, he was the apologist for the Great Awakening. He was in communication with uh, uh, Theodore Frelinghausen and Gilbert and uh, William Tennet, uh, with George Whitfield, and uh, so he was in communication with all of these men. He wrote books in defense of the the workings of the Spirit, uh, helped to define doctrines. Uh, surrounding the working of the Holy Spirit, um, the, the character and nature of the gospel, changing culture—all of that was a part of his great legacy.
1: Now, and again, George Whitfield, another name that that came up there, uh, perhaps lesser known than than Edwards, but still played a a tremendous role uh, during this time as well. So, tell us a little bit about uh, George Whitfield and and what he's known for.
0: Well, Whitfield was an Englishman. He came and visited uh, the uh, American colonies seven different occasions. The first occasion was, I believe, 1738. And uh, his purpose initially was to aid in the establishment of an orphanage in Georgia. Uh, he had just recently graduated from uh, university at Oxford uh, where he had developed a strong friendship with uh, John Wesley, another student interested in living a deeper Christian life, um, he, he had already become somewhat of a celebrity uh, back in England, uh, having preached revival messages to enormous crowds uh, outdoors. Um, so he, he he visited the the colonies and um, and began preaching uh, largely to help raise support for uh, this um, th- this orphanage in Georgia uh, but on his it was on his third tour of america in 1740 that the that the revival fires were really fanned into full flame uh, he uh, started in savannah georgia Preached to massive crowds, uh, and eventually uh, took uh, that uh, that same model to outdoor preaching to New York, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, uh, Charleston, the, the the largest cities in the colonies at that time. It was on that third uh, trip to America that that Benjamin Franklin first heard uh, George Whitfield preach uh he was 6 blocks away in uh the heart of philadelphia the uh the the the, the streets were completely jammed with people to uh to hear uh, whitfield and uh franklin was just absolutely astonished that that in this massive crowd uh, and again he was 6 blocks back he could hear whitfield Perfectly, Whitfield had this amazing voice, and um, he, uh, he he preached with great passion and and with incredible effectiveness and It is said that thousands and thousands all up and down the uh, the, the the coast of the Atlantic came to Christ, and in some ways George Whitfield was America's first real celebrity and he was the first person to really tie all of the colonies together Uh, up to that point. They really had largely separate existences. Uh, There was good concourse uh, at various times between uh, some of the states, South Carolina, North Carolina, but, you know, we, we have to remember that there were still border wars between the various colonies uh, Virginia and Maryland, most notably, had a succession of border wars. So it wasn't like the American colonies identified with each other. They, they didn't see themselves as one thing. They saw themselves as 21 separate British colonies. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were. George Whitfield, by traveling and by bringing this kind of common enthusiasm not only became a common celebrity in all of the East Coast colonies, uh, but but he, he began the process of tying them together culturally because the, the revival itself gave common ground where common ground had not really existed before.
1: Wow, that's quite an influence. Um, I, I wonder if it's that his voice sometimes carried across state borders. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it sounds like that might have been possible. Um,
0: you know, there's a, there's a famous quote uh, from uh, one of the great Shakespearean actors, uh, uh, Garrick, uh, who has a still a theater in the West End in London named for him. But he, he always used to joke, I would pay a hundred guineas just to say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. <laughs> And then wow. uh, there's another story that's told that uh, Benjamin Franklin used to tell his friends that Whitfield could simply say the name Mesopotamia and people would come to Christ. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a powerful preacher indeed. Uh, now- I actually
0: had the opportunity one time to preach in a pulpit that uh, Whitfield had preached from, and I climbed up into the to the pulpit and I stood there for a second and I said mesopotamia <laughs> and no one got it
1: no one got the joke <laughs> I had
0: no idea what i was doing i was so disappointed
1: well it's a valiant attempt anyway yeah, yeah it, was, it was certainly worth
0: your humor
1: yeah <laughs> um now there there were of course also the wesley brothers um were yes. very influential at this time john wesley and charles wesley uh and they were they were friends of george whitfield um but they were we, yeah and and that friendship kind of um went a bit sour for a while and and there were certainly some theological differences that developed between the wesleys and george whitfield but um so how how did they differ um how did the wesleys differ from say jonathan edwards george whitfield and and um and what influence did the wesleys bring to the great awakening
0: well, the, uh, the the Wesleys largely stayed in England, uh, although uh, they too were uh, concerned about uh, creating this orphanage um, in Georgia. Uh, John Wesley's uh, conversion actually takes place after he's been involved in the Holiness Club. And uh, so his conversion really is uh, his Aldersgate experience is in England, and then his movement stays largely in england uh, the, the 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 great Methodist movement really was largely initially the fruit of whitfield 's preaching. <clears throat> but when Whitfield realized that so much of his time and attention would be focused on the American colonies, he turned most of the work in England, and, and then eventually in, in in Scotland, in Cornwall, and in Wales, he turned all of that over to John Wesley, who by that time had been converted and was, um, was himself a, a very powerful preacher, uh, utilizing the methods of prayer and of outdoor preaching to attract large crowds and to begin uh, the discipleship process. But but as you say, there there was a theological divide. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and uh, the Tennant uh, William and Gilbert Tennant, um, and even uh, Theodore Frelinghausen in New Jersey, they all were deeply committed in the the what we might call the Continental Reformed theological tradition. So, following John Calvin and. Um, emphasizing the doctrines of grace uh the wesley john wesley in particular was uh less influenced by that tradition and more influenced by the holiness uh thread of the old puritans mm-hmm. and uh so you, you, to to use the common parlance of of the day uh George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were Calvinists, and Wesley was an Arminian, mm-hmm. and that eventually created a rift between Wesley and and Whitfield. Now Charles Wesley, who is uh, the obviously the brother of John wasn't really embroiled in the controversy. He actually attempted to bridge the gap. And uh, you see the attempt to bridge the gap in many of Charles Wesley's uh, hymns. And that, that was his great contribution. He enabled the Great Awakening to sing. And um, so you have this rift. So eventually, uh, all of the Methodist work in, in England was turned over to the Wesleys, and all of that uh, re- renewal and revival work in the americas uh, came under the the ministry of george whitfield hmm.
1: so it, i i think it's fascinating to see how how um, god brought all these uh very different personalities and gifts together at at one time um and on two different continents to accomplish all of this, it's really a beautiful picture to see um looking back, of course, the way that all of this was was being woven together um, yeah and,
0: you know, there were some political aspects of this that that really contributed to the different tenor of the American versus the English great awakening uh, because uh, one of the things that happened in seventeen forty five there was a rising a rebellion in Scotland uh, that was eventually put down by the Hanoverian uh, family, uh, George II and uh, his younger brother, the Duke of Cumberland, uh, were able to put down the rising of the Jacobites uh, that had really swept with Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, all of Scotland. So many of the, of the great houses of Scotland uh, were crushed Following that re- rebellion, and the the result was that economically they couldn't sustain their old way of life. They began to clear uh, their lands of old tenants, and the leftover uh, remnants of the old feudal system was just broken. So what that meant was a flood of immigrants from Scotland went to America, and uh, these Scots Presbyterians. Uh, came to America at precisely the moment that the Great Awakening was uh, was occurring, when there was a need for pastors, elders, church planters. All of a sudden, you have these well uh Scots Presbyterians arriving on the scene, ready to step into those roles. That really helped to shape the character of the theology of the Great Awakening almost as much as the leadership of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. And, of course, there was none of that in the English Great Awakening.
1: Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, that sort of providential bringing together of uh, exactly what was needed at the time. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, but but politics clearly playing a role in how successful the the, – I guess the, the results of the great awakening would be. Um, and I guess, uh, those, those individuals being able to step into those roles in local communities and remain there to, to teach those who had, um, been part of the great awakening or those who had been converted during the great awakening that, that, uh, allowed the, the, revival, if you will, to continue much further than if it had simply been, as some had charged more of an emotional experience. Now these people were able to be discipled and trained and to continue learning.
0: Um, and, and churches planted and, mm-hmm. and really along the frontier where there were not prior to this enough educated clergy, you have now this flood of Scots Presbyterians you know, well-catechized elders, mm-hmm. able to move out into the frontier. And so you have a massive amount of church planting uh, that occurs at this time as well.
1: Right. Now, the the Great Awakening itself um, would um, certainly slow down over time as far as the— um, the massive crowds, uh, the outdoor crusades, the the emotional response, uh, but but its influence is still being felt to this day, so um, this is I would imagine the most difficult question that I'm going to ask you today. it's a very big question certainly, um, but what influence has the Great Awakening had on the founding of the evangelical movement, which of course is still influential in America.
0: Yeah, I would say that it's a, a tremendous amount of the the impetus for the creation of evangelicalism but was in fact the the, um, the the revival movement of the Great Awakening. The institutions that become the defining features of evangelicalism are all founded in the wake of or uh, during the time of the Great Awakening. So. Uh, William Tennant uh, was, uh, I've mentioned several times, uh, he was an Irish-born Presbyterian minister who came to America in 1718. He settled in Pennsylvania, and he began a frontier seminary in a log house. Um, some Presbyterians who, in the school's earliest days, lo- disliked the methods, uh, used the graduates of the the seminary as uh, sort of the, the punching bag of their jibes and uh, called the seminary the Log College. Uh, but uh, the Log College <clears throat> eventually became the College of New Jersey and then later Princeton University. <clears throat> and it was Princeton uh, that really uh, provided m- most of the Presbyterian ministers uh, in that uh, succeeding uh, couple of generations, to go out to the frontier, plant the churches, uh, helped to define the foundations of of the culture, and um, and, and shape the uniqueness of the American character. Uh, many, many years later, uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, he could see the threads of that movement uh, still very much in evidence shaping the way that American culture, uh, everything from art, music, and literature across the boards to uh, the institutions of authority and power, uh, law, governance, uh, the, the, the American character of hard work and diligence, of honesty and openness, all of this, uh, most historians trace back to the uniqueness of the Great Awakening.
1: Now, um- this has been just again bird's eye view, a big uh, kind of um, skimming of the surface of uh, what happened during the Great Awakening. Just a few of the personalities who were influential during the period of the Great Awakening, and then, of course, just trying to plant the seed that uh, that the Great Awakening has has is still bearing fruit to this day. Um, uh, and then we see it in the different branches of evangelicalism and how uh, the evangelical movement was founded and and so on but for those listeners who who want to explore this a little uh, a little deeper um, who want to learn more about the Great Awakening or its ideas or uh, major people its influence uh what what resources would you recommend? Do you have favorite uh, Books, lectures, anything that uh, that you think uh, our listeners should be aware of as they continue learning more about this?
0: Well, one of the volumes, it's actually two volumes, that, that has most deeply shaped me, uh, both of my understanding of the Great Awakening, but also just my own spiritual walk and my theology, is a two-volume biography of, of George Whitfield. <clears throat> written by Arnold Dalimore. It was published by uh, Crossway uh, here in the US. There is a a, a, a one-volume abridged version, but the two-volume is just magnificent. Uh, it's still published uh, in the UK by Banner of Truth. And I, I just highly recommend that. It's, a, it's just a, a marvelous, marvelous work. And it gives you the full survey of everything that occurs in The Great Awakening, not just things that directly pertain to George Whitfield. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one thing that I would recommend. Another thing that I would recommend is uh, Revivals and Revivalism uh, by uh, Ian Murray. It's a, it's a book that helps to distinguish uh, between the methodologies of revivalism and what it is that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in accordance with uh, God's providence uh, when real uh, transforming gospel work takes place. Uh, that's, uh, that's a marvelous book, and it's, it's uh, rich in its historical survey and incredibly helpful. And then finally, I would recommend virtually any of the the popular biographies of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is someone we need to know about, uh, both because of his importance in the past, but also because of the legacy that he has left for us and the example that he sets for us, Uh, his diligence, his faithfulness, his lack of guile. Uh, in the midst of uh, the many battles uh, that he fought, uh, his uh, his attentiveness to lifelong learning, his discipline in reading, he, he's just really uh, quite remarkable in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the little biography by uh, David Vaughn on Jonathan Edwards. Um, George Marston has written the sort of a big biography, but uh, I, I would prefer uh, actually— uh, Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards, uh, but there are a ton of really, really good resources on Edwards.
1: Well, I appreciate those recommendations. Lot, lots to learn, and a lot of, uh, uh, as always, the list of books to read goes on and on, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> if that gets taller.
1: Yes, it always does. It always does. Well, Dr. Grant, thank you so much for taking your time and and talking to us about this uh, getting us started a little further down the road and understanding the Great Awakening and its major players. Thanks again.
0: Blessings. So good to talk to you again.
1: Well, thank you again, Dr. Grant, for joining me for this episode. Thanks to all of you who tuned in to listen. I hope you found it very profitable. This This episode covered a lot of ground, um, a lot of ideas that that I think we need to continue to think about and um, sort of explore uh, how the Great Awakening and those the ideas that were um, begun then, or um, the seeds that were planted then, maybe is a better way to put it, have uh, borne fruit into the evangelical movement and even, even to this day uh, continue to influence our culture. Um, if you'd like to Explore these ideas a little further. Uh, we'll try to make sure to include uh, the list of books that Dr. Grant mentioned uh, in the show notes. And for now, uh, I'm your host Brian Phillips. I'm signing off for this episode. I hope you'll join us next time around when we have kind of uh, a concluding episode for this season, where we try to wrap up all of the different ideas that we've explored over the course of season two, and. Uh, sort of leave us with some further questions and ideas to think about uh, in regards to church histories, uh, to church history and some of the major personalities that we've talked about. Thanks again for joining us, and I'll talk to you again soon. a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?